This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Well, the new year is upon us, and that means it's time for public radio programs across the globe to throw together their year-in-review programming. And here at Undisciplined, that means we're going to be looking back and listening in to some of our favorite interviews from the past year. And this was, of course, a year in which we took this show on the road as the COVID-19 pandemic pushed us out of our warm and comfy public radio studio, and we had to get creative. The makeshift studio where I'm standing now used to be my wine cellar, and I'm joined today by undisciplined producer Naomi Ward. Naomi, where are you today? I'm in Arlington, Virginia. And I understand that you uh, you created for yourself a little private studio, too, there in the room where you are. Yes, I did. I don't have a home office, so I made a blanket fort with my desk chair and a suitcase and a fan. This is what we've been asking a lot of our guests to do. And I mean, these are some pretty serious scientific folks. They're really cooperative. Have you been surprised at how cooperative they are when we ask them to do things like this? Yeah, honestly, when we moved out of the studio in the spring and started doing all of our shows over the phone, I thought that it was going to be really tough. But there are a lot of creative ways that you can record good audio from home and our guests have been really good about it. You chose a really strange and and very challenging year to become the producer of this program. What's been the biggest challenge for you? I think that the biggest thing for me has just been ever since we stopped recording in the studio, not being able to meet the guests in person and not being able to be there as we're recording. That's been kind of tough. It feels sometimes a little bit disconnected, but I really enjoy editing the episodes a lot now because I feel like I am there, even though I wasn't there while it was being recorded. So I'm still learning a lot and I'm still having lots of fun. That Learning a lot, that's that's really the best part of doing this show. We get a chance each week to meet really incredible, intelligent, really inspiring people. And we learn a, a lot. What's been the big takeaway from that part of the experience, from the, the learning part? I've never considered myself a good science person. I was always better at the humanities subjects, and that's what I majored in. And so I was a little intimidated when I first took this job, just because I've always just thought of myself as being really bad at science. But being able to learn from all of these researchers about their different work has been really awesome because we're able to talk to them and kind of frame it in a way that anybody can understand. And we did this one episode with this scientist about jargon, and we had talked about how when people go in with this mindset that they're bad at science or they're bad at math, then that makes a big difference in whether they enjoy it. And so being able to kind of get out of that mindset and learn about this research has made me feel like maybe I'm not as bad at science as I thought I was. That was our program with communications researcher Hillary Shulman, who really opened my eyes to the idea that like, insider language, right? Jargon. It just doesn't help. It, it, it doesn't just keep people out, but it actually convinces them that they don't even have a place there, that they don't want to have a place there. That's, that's kind of tragic. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've had a really good time. Like, um, I have a roommate that also doesn't like science and doesn't like math and majored in a humanities topic. And whenever I'm editing the episodes, I love to debrief her while we're eating dinner about what the episode was about and talk about how cool it is. Because we never did science in college, but it makes us feel really smart. (laughs) We were talking before about all the different intersections between fields of science. Mm -hmm. That's that's one of your favorite parts. Yeah, I think that another misconception that I kind of had when I was in school was that research is just STEM, which is so far from the truth. A lot of the shows that we've done have been with scientists that study social science, like psychology or anthropology or archaeology, all of these things that I didn't really fully consider research until I started producing this show. And some of my favorite shows are the ones where you see researchers and scientists from all different fields coming together to produce one work because you get to see things from so many different perspectives and that's always really cool. That's a really big part of the reason this show exists. Like when we first started this, I think the long-term listeners are going to remember that Our whole thing was we would take two scientists from unrelated fields and then we would interview them separately and then we would put them together. We'd like to say we'd lock them in a room and not let them go until they talk to each other, which, you know, I should say for reasons of legality, we didn't actually do. We really loved that, but we also wanted more time with each individual. And so this year, especially, we've transitioned away from that. But I think we're still trained to look for interdisciplinarians and and for interdisciplinary research. Yeah, that's definitely been a really prominent theme in a lot of the episodes that we've done, especially the one that we did about healthy people and healthy forests in Borneo. This was the episode where we talked to Health and Harmony founder Kenry Webb and Berkeley ecologist Isabel Jones and Stanford ecologist Sana Sokolo about a study that looked at the ecological benefits of building a health clinic in Borneo where patients could pay for care by agreeing to protect the nearby forest. And that, as Isabel Jones said, was really sort of a crazy innovation. Naomi, what did you hear when you listened to the Health and Harmony interview. One of the things that they talked about in that episode was radical listening, and that was a big part of the research that they did while they were in Borneo. And so that was something that I really loved, is how science is most successful when researchers are really good listeners. Sana Sokolo talked about that and about how important it is not to assume that, you know, once you find something, once you have a solution, that's going to solve all your problems and that that's going to be applicable in all cases. Here she is talking about that process. We are pretty confident that these issues of healthcare gaps, poverty, and logging are probably linked pretty strongly in, in many other places where they co-occur geographically. The thing to note, though, about that thought is that we don't know for sure what the individual circumstances of all of those communities might be. And what's really remarkable here is that, yes, we saw really strong impacts, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the exact same program replicated in somewhere else would lead to those same impacts. We we know that the process that Kennery went through to talk to the communities and understand what their needs were and why they were logging was really foundational. 
The Health and Harmony Research was a collaboration between public health specialists and ecologists. Yeah, it's those kinds of collaborations that I really, really like to do. And that's part of why I really liked this other episode that we did called Monkeying with History. This was the one that we did with Nikki Pereja, where she talked about her work identifying species of monkeys that were on a 3,500-year-old Greek painting when the monkeys were actually from a place far away in South Asia. The way this thing all played out was just so, so fascinating. I mean, like the idea, you know, Nikki Pereja kind of fell in love with this mural, this really old mural when she was an undergraduate, and she never got it out of her head. And then, you know, she introduced it to some primatologists. And they looked at these monkeys that people had assumed, you know, like were monkeys from Africa. This is Greece is fairly close to Africa. And the primatologists were like, no. And what happened after that was this effort that brought together art historians and wildlife biologists and archaeologists and geologists. Yeah. And I really liked how Nikki kind of told this story about all of these different researchers coming together to tell this story about these monkeys and this painting. Um, The way that she pulled in all of these different clues about like the way that the monkeys held their tails or their individual faces and expressions and like the colors in the painting. It was kind of like solving a puzzle. Or like being part of a detective story. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence comes from the fact that lapis lazuli, the really high quality stuff is almost black. It's so blue. Um, it's got these flecks of, of pyrite or fool's gold in it. So it really, it almost looks like the night sky. This stuff is amazing. And it comes from one place. It comes from Badakhshan, which is located in Afghanistan. That's the only place in the old world. So Europe, Asia, and Africa, where we have this stuff naturally occurring. So lapis lazuli is, because it only comes from one place, is so valuable to all of these different ancient cultures. And so if you think sort of backwards, if you think about it more in terms of, well, when we find lapis lazuli in a location, we then know that through whether it's direct or indirect exchange, we can then prove a connection from that location back to at least Afghanistan, where the mines are originally, right? Nikki Pereja is just so enthusiastic about her work. Yeah, that was one of the things that I really loved about doing that episode was how enthusiastic she was. And I think that's really important. And I like that we get to share that with our listeners when researchers really love the work that they're doing. If there's one thing I really want our show to be, it's a place where people can see that science isn't this stodgy thing, right? It's not sterile. It's not slow. And Nikki Pereja is sort of like, the perfect person to make this case because she just, you ask her one question and she just goes off and you could just feel her excitement and it's really addictive. If you have the image up in front of you and you look closely at the faces of these little guys, now make sure you're only looking at the original fragments because in the reconstruction, the stuff that we don't have that's not from an original fragment looks really smooth and really nice and all the other stuff looks kind of chunky. But we have three nice, well-preserved faces on the original fragments. And if you look closely, they each have highly individualized features. 
Now, this means that we're not copying artwork that we're seeing out of Egypt. If you think about Egyptian artwork, you know, it's very kind of stencily, I guess, would be a (laughs) not art historical (laughs) term to use. It's very, you know, monkey, monkey, monkey. It's not this monkey, that monkey, and the other one over there. So really what we're seeing here does seem to suggest that they observed these live animals in motion. Sometimes we don't just talk about cool new studies. We talk about themes in science and big ideas. And our guests include people like Sheena McFarland, whose doctorate is in educational leadership and policy, but whose passion is in science. And she comes routinely on to our monthly science news roundup to help us make sense of what's going on in the world of science. We've also had on Judy Fays, who reports on the Mountain West for Inside Climate News. Yeah, and we also had Rob Davies from Utah State. He's a physicist who's also been a technical liaison for NASA's International Space Station. But his primary focus for the past decade has been on what he calls critical science communication. And he is such a compelling storyteller. Yeah, I love how he approaches science communication about climate change and sustainability. He teaches a class, a new class at Utah State called Unveiling the Anthropocene that I took when I was an undergrad. And it was one of my favorite classes that I took in all of college. And we talked all about the different ways that these different parts connect with climate change, because it's not just on its own, like it intersects with energy and transportation and food and economics. And then we talked about how, because it was a class in the College of Arts. So we talked about how we could express through art these really important issues like climate change. It wasn't Berkeley sociologists that were connecting us to, you know, the deep social changes of the 60s. It was 19-year-old musicians and filmmakers and writers and beat poets. We connect to difficult information through stories. And I one of the best examples of that that just really struck me a number of years ago is how many historians, American historians, point to Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin as a watershed moment in this country's trajectory on slavery. And it's not like the abolitionist preachers hadn't been beating the pulpits for decades. They had, but the country was just at an impasse. And along comes this woman who indeed was an abolitionist, but she didn't preach. She just wrote a book. She wrote a story about a family. And it was the, one of the best-selling books of the entire 19th century. And it just connected to people on a level that said, you know, I can no longer be a part of this. And she wasn't preaching in the book. She was just telling a story about a family. That really speaks to me. So I spend a lot of time these days trying to tell the story in a way that people understand it. But also, I spend a lot of time telling the story to artists hoping that they're going to then go figure out how to tell this story in a way that connects to us on a mass scale as a culture. And I also really appreciate how Rob is so focused on reframing issues, not to make them happier, because we all know that there's nothing super happy about climate change, but reframing it to make it feel important and accessible to more people so that we're looking at climate change, not from the perspective of, I mean, not necessarily just what are we going to do about this? Can we fix this? Because it's not really a question so much as something that has to happen. Like looking at it as a crisis is the only really logical way to respond to climate change. And this was really eye-opening to me and really you know, changed my perspective because I, I've always thought it's our job, you know, science communicators, it's our job to 
you know, tell people the bad news and the good news. And, you know, Rob said, look, man, there is no good news. This is a crisis and we deal with it or we don't. Those are the only two options. Rob talked about that in our chat. He did. Here's that clip. My role is I'm trained in the hardcore sciences. So I'm going to bring that voice to it and that perspective to it to begin with and just sort of tell it as the science is telling it. But then rather than allow people to define that as doom and gloom is to push back and say, no, 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 this isn't doom and gloom. This is, it's alarming, but it's not alarmist. This is just the real message. And that is, I think, something I can bring to it and then try to force the reframing. And we'll get back to your original opening comments is how do you move forward being optimistic? And it's taken me a long time to get here. But what I've understood, or at least to the extent that this really helps me, is in situations like we're in, optimism slash pessimism, hope slash despair is just completely the wrong framing. It's not that I am here to offer you hope, and I sometimes say this in talks, I absolutely have no hope to offer. At the same time, I'm not here to offer despair. And so give people the hard information and force a different mindset that makes that optimism, pessimism framing irrelevant. Communication is so vital to science, and I think that it's important that for physical sciences to impact the world, the social sciences and the humanities have to kind of play a role in that. One of my favorite programs that we did this last year was with a social scientist, psychologist Kyle Schur from Central Michigan University. For the past decade, he's been trying to solve the problem of why people confess to things that they haven't done. And here he is talking about where that came from. I think if you would have told people this, maybe even five years ago, but certainly, you know, 10 years ago, that confessions can create a body of evidence on its own to corroborate the veracity of it, I think a lot of people would have scoffed at you. The reality is that it can change, even things as presumed to be as objective as mixed DNA analysis. And so what might happen is forensic scientist is trying to make a fingerprint match from the the print taken from the scene to the suspect, or they're trying to make a, a DNA match, and they're just uncertain at some point. So it's ambiguous. They're, you know, they're maybe leaning toward inconclusive. But then they hear from the interrogator or maybe a detective that the suspect they're trying to match gave a confession, that the suspect confessed to the crime. All of a sudden, the subjective parts of what we presume to be very objective in forensic science influence the interpretation of those kinds of, of evidence. And so now what initially might have been ambiguous or inconclusive is determined to be a match because, well, the person confessed they must be guilty. So this must be a match. I mean, it could be fingerprint, it could be DNA, it could be other types of forensic science. And it happens with eyewitness identifications as well. And what you're left with then is a body of evidence that is corroborating the confession. But the reality is, is that it was actually molded and shaped to fit the confession. Like a lot of our guests, Kyle Schur is the author of a lot of scientific papers, but one of the things that we're hoping to do in 2021 is talk to a few more authors. We did have a few on this year. We had Eric Pepper, the psychologist, talking about his book on the ways in which technology is causing stress in our lives. We had uh, Julie Schumacher on the program to talk about her fictional books about the absurdity of academia. 
Yeah, and we also had Elizabeth Patton, who is the author of a really cool new book on working from home called Easy Living, The Rise of the Home Office. And that's a subject that really couldn't be more relevant right now. I say as we are talking to each other both from our homes. One of the things I loved about this interview is how thoughtful Elizabeth Patton was about who this affects. She wasn't just thinking about people who work at home, which makes sense if you're talking about working at home, but she was thoughtful about all of the people for whom this is not even an option. Because I I think that um, in a system of capitalism, we can't really separate work from home. And that's, you know, what I struggle with because like you said, there's always a push for new markets and these companies are intentionally doing what they're designed to do is to find new customers, right. And find new spaces for their products and new ways of using their products and new people to use their products. And so the home naturally in terms of when these technologies become more portable, but then also it's not just, you know, the technologies themselves or the company themselves. We're accepting of these narratives because it is a privilege to work at home and there are advantages to working at home. And so I also, in the end of the book, try to, my closing thoughts to recognize that that we're very interdependent, right? And when other people, and I say we professionals, people that are able to work at home are interdependent on people who are not able to work at home and people to provide services, right? Or make products for us and that we have to recognize this. But I think that it's quite easy to fall into and just accept that, yes, why not? Why not work at home? Why not work all hours during the day? Because this is, you know, the way our lives are structured right now, because, Honestly, this idea of easy living, and that's why I named the book that, and it's more in a sarcastic sense, right? But they're pushing this idea of easy living, but is it easy, right? In terms of, and that's what I'm trying to question by laying out this long historical analysis of how we got to where we are today. So Naomi, what is it like to look back on this crazy year and realize that through all of this, we managed to pull off a show every week. I think it feels pretty awesome. (laughs) Like, I didn't really see how it was going to work. But I mean, just the fact that, that we were able to kind of pull this off and keep it going makes me feel really good about this show that we make. When all this went down, when we basically closed up the studio, I was really worried that we were going to have a hard time getting a hold of people, getting all the scientists to talk about their work, because I knew people were going home to places where they didn't really have a good office to work at. And a lot of times they, you know, were taking care of children. And it has been absolutely incredible how giving all of these scientists and researchers and explorers have been with their time. You see that on the front end because you book almost all of our guests. Yeah, um, I know that, I mean, just this past year, I mean, people are super busy and dealing with a lot of really hard things. And so it's been really great that we still get to do this and that we have still gotten to talk to so many awesome researchers this year. And something that I think we had talked about a little bit in the spring when COVID started really hitting the U.S. was 
news was being impacted and like local stories. Like the fact that small stations like Utah Public Radio have been able to kind of come through and that people in the community have helped to make that happen also makes me feel really good. It makes me feel good too because one of the things that we can do and we, we've tried to do really hard on this program through this all is obviously we can't ignore the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. And and obviously that's a science story, right? And we're a science show, but there's so much else still going on in the world. And if we can help people balance their news appetites just a little bit and, and give them something that instead of making them feel bad about the world, makes them feel a little better about the world and hopeful and excited or interested or even just distracted. I think that's a good service. And I feel, you know, like I feel lucky that we get to do this. <laughs> it's it's pretty cool that we get to do this. Yeah. I mean, we cover a lot of climate change related stories, which as we said, not fun <laughs> all the time, right. but very important, still important. And I also really love when we get to do episodes about like star-nosed moles and weird animals and like monkey paintings and archaeology. Like I like that we get to do fun science stories to kind of balance out the gloom. Well, I want to say, Naomi, I'm glad that I've gotten to do this with you this year. Thank you. I'm glad that I get to do this with you. And unfortunately, we're out of time. And whether this end of your special is the first episode of Undisciplined you've listened to or you've tuned in since day one, we want to thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. That's me. And our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud. And our host is Matthew LaPlante. And that's me. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.